You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley, and we're continuing today in our series through the book of Exodus. And today we come to a rather famous text, a rather lengthy text, uh, chapter 5 through 11, which we will not read all of it today, or else we'd be here uh, through lunch and into the afternoon. Uh, but we're going to try to do our best to cover the plagues of Egypt. Now, this past week, there was this internet phenomenon that began to sweep through my Twitter feed. It's this game called Wordle. Uh, anybody play Wordle in this? Okay, so some of you are addicted for sure. All right, I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm there with you. I wake up early in the morning, and either my wife and I, we jump on, and we see who will be the first to get it right uh, or wrong. Uh, she has not got one wrong yet, but I have. Uh, and then we try to try our best to, uh, to keep score of who can guess these words together. Now, if you were like, I don't know what you're talking about with this game called Wordle, it was invented by this British guy with the last name Wardle. All right, there's a play on words right there. Uh, and he wanted a fun way that people could come together uh, and, and really just interact with one another through this guessing game to try to figure out what is the five-letter word of the day. So basically, it is a web-based puzzle in which players are to guess a valid five-letter English word, and you get six tries to get it right. Very high stakes, right? Uh, and, and as you continue to try, uh, the, the, the little squares will light up either green or yellow if you're getting closer and closer to the word. And finally, you try to get all the green letters in the row and guess the proper word. Now, if you're smart enough to do that, if you're smart enough to guess a five-letter word in the English language and get it right, then I, I, I'm learning that the social media etiquette is then to go and make sure you proclaim that to everyone <laughs> so that they know how smart you are. Like, like, what else to brag about than that you know five-letter words in the English language, right? Like, that's a great thing to just proclaim to the, word on your, the world on your Twitter feed. But this game actually is quite nerve-wracking. <laughs> it actually is quite frustrating at times. Because when you think of it, you get six tries to guess one five-letter word, and there are over 158,000 possibilities. And it can get pretty nerve-wracking. As try after try after try go by, and you're getting towards the end, and you're wondering, man, I'm not going to get this. Like, I'm going to miss it today. I'm not going to get it right today. I'm going to swing and a miss today. And the reason I bring this up is when we come to a passage like this, uh, one, I just need something a little lighthearted as we enter the plagues. Uh, but, but the second thing is when you, come, when you come into a passage like this that is incredibly heavy, right? Sometimes, even as Christians, we can kind of be nervous and almost walking on eggshells when we come to hard passages like this. Because in reality, in our hearts sometimes, we can begin to think, just like the game of Wordle, that our chances are going to run out. That if we don't get it right today, that is God going to bring down judgment on us? Are plagues going to descend on us today? Are we going to strike out on our six chances to get it right today in living for the Lord? Is he going to do the same thing he did to Egypt to us? And if we're honest, I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I go through moments like this where there are days where I mess up and instead of resting in God's grace, I'm nervously walking around and think, is this my last chance? Like, is this going to be the sixth try for me today? Or, or in Pharaoh's account, is this going to be the 10th try? Right? 
Am I going to get it wrong again? And what I want us to see in this passage today is that what, what God is actually revealing to us in the plagues is his mercy. God is revealing to us in the plagues how we can trust and how we can follow him and why he is the only one worthy of that level of devotion. Why there's no one else that we can have confidence to draw close to than our God. Why there's no one else who can meet us actually in our time of need than our God. And so today as we enter in this text that there's going to be a lot of questions probably uh, in your mind. There's going to be things that we perhaps don't even cover. I pray that today what we'll see is the mercy of our God in Jesus Christ. And our main point, our main idea of the text is that God is going to showcase through the plagues that he alone is worthy of our worship and devotion. You see, there's a question that Pharaoh is going to pose, and it's going to, everything's going to kind of flow from that question. And uh, we just read the question, it is, who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice? And today, through the plagues, God is going to magnificently answer that question for us. In our outline, we're going to see it three things specifically that God is going to reveal about himself through the plagues. Number one, that he is the one true God. Number two, that he is the wise creator. And then number three, he is the merciful judge. And so let's get in the text. And before we begin with this first point, he is the one true God. Just kind of a way of recap where we are. If you're, if you're new with us, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, it is the second book of the Bible. So it's right there at the beginning. And it's part of this series of five books called the Pentateuch, which are telling the story of God's people, of how he's redeeming his people after the fall in the book of Genesis. And so we have this, this story of this family from the offspring of Abraham right? And Abraham is told that, that his offspring is going to be a blessing to the world by God. And God actually tells him, your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And as we get to the end of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we see that Abraham's offspring is multiplying through the sons of Jacob, and they sojourn to the land of Egypt because of a famine. And as they come to the land of Egypt, that blessing that they would continue to increase and multiply happens. And the people of Israel continue to, to multiply and grow stronger in the land of Egypt. And then we see that there's this new Pharaoh now in town. And he doesn't see God's people as a blessing. He sees them as a curse. And he hates God's people. And through his hatred, he does something vile and wicked. And he tries to literally wipe out all the male children of a generation. And in his trying, God actually protects his people. And specifically, God raises up this one baby boy named Moses. And last week we saw as Moses grows up, he goes out and he's out in the wilderness in the land of Midian. And in that moment, as we saw last week, he encounters the burning bush. And in encountering the burning bush, he encounters God. And in this incredible encounter with God, God commissions Moses and then now Aaron to go back to Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh to let his people go so they may go in the wilderness to worship him, to serve him, to dwell with their God. And that's where we pick up here in verse 5. Or chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Here's his answer. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And what ends up happening from this moment is, is Pharaoh actually doubles down on his punishment of the people of Israel. It begins to make their labor even more laborsome, their work even harder. And, and so Moses and Aaron, they go to God and they're saying, what's going to happen? And God says, trust me, I'm going to rescue my people. 
But he also tells Moses, he tells him, hey, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. He tells him, he's not going to listen to you. And more so than that, I'm going to harden his heart. His heart's going to grow cold towards the people of God and towards me. Now, I just want us to, to sit back for a moment because that phrase, we'll, we'll see it in the, in the text occasionally. In fact, it appears 18 different times where Pharaoh's heart is growing hard. And we think, what does that mean? What, what does it mean that Pharaoh's heart is growing hard in this story? And it's revealing that, that in the, the question that he's asking, there's this confrontation between him and God. And it's going to continue through each and every plague. And in the confrontation between him and God, we're going to see that Pharaoh's heart continues to grow even colder and harder towards God. Every time God reveals something about himself, Pharaoh distanced himself from God. Every time God reveals something to him, you see this distancing of Pharaoh. And in some places, in the first, especially in the first five plagues, we'll see that Pharaoh's heart is naturally just being hardened. He's doing it under his own willpower. He's absolutely just, just continuing to oppose God and oppose the, the opportunities Moses brings to him to graciously humble himself and listen to the Lord. And after every one of those moments, he gets to this point in the story where it seems like he is overcome with his own evilness, right? There's a moment in the story where even his sorcerers and his counsel think he's lost his mind. And in those moments, we see that God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart. In other words, God begins to give Pharaoh the desires of his heart, which were evil. And in that moment, what God is revealing in this story is that in one sense, he's completely in control, right? Nothing is happening in the story that is unplanned by God. But at the same time, his plan is unfolding in, in, in a way that doesn't violate the responsibility of every single human in the story, including every single action that Pharaoh takes. And so at the beginning of this, we see that God is already putting the cards on the table He's saying, I'm going to bring this judgment upon Egypt. I'm going to bring these plagues. Pharaoh's not going to listen, but I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to rescue them, Moses. So go and speak to Pharaoh. And that's where we find the very first thing we learn from these plagues is that he is speaking on behalf. Moses is speaking on behalf of the Lord to reveal that the Lord is the one true God. When he goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh asks the question, who is the Lord that should obey him? What he's actually saying here is that, hey, look, we have lots of gods in Egypt, right? I mean, he's speaking as a religious pluralist, not an atheist. And, and in Egyptian culture, people were religious pluralists. In other words, they were like, it's fine that you have your God, right? But I have my God. You get a God, you get a God, you get a God. We all get a God, right? Like that, that was Egypt. <laughs> 114 different gods you could worship. And it's not a matter of not, not having a God to worship. The offense comes from the question, why would I obey his voice? Like, why, why does he have authority on my life? Why would I bow the need to him? You see, it's the same thing in our own culture, right? I mean, we struggle with this. In fact, most Americans believe in a deity. Most Americans believe in some higher power, some God. And it's not a problem to believe in that because I think our hearts really are drawn to that. That's how God created us. To, to our hearts are drawn for the sacred, for something bigger than us. It's not a problem to believe that. The offense comes just like for Pharaoh that what if that God has some authority over me? Like, what if that God tells me how to live my life? If there's one thing as a society we cannot tolerate, it's that some deity impends on our freedoms and our desires, right? And that's really Pharaoh's struggle with this question. The struggle is not that you worship the God Yahweh. The struggle here is that, why would I obey him? Why should he have any authority over my life? You see, Pharaoh himself considers himself a god, right? 
And we may never make that claim. But when we don't consider really who, who God is and what the Bible teaches us, sometimes we're saying the same thing, right? We know better than you, God. Why would we listen to your voice? And so what does God do in the plagues? He very carefully dismantles all the Egyptian gods that Pharaoh would, wor- would worship. In, 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 in a way, what he's going to do is he's going to correspond every single one of his plagues to show his power, his greatness, his realness over every single Egyptian god that the Egyptians would worship. He is going to reveal that he is the one true God and that these other gods, they have no real power. They have no real authority. And so let's look at the plagues and see how this plays out. In chapter 7, we see the first plague. Pharaoh's going in the morning. He says, go out to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, which happened uh, back in chapter 5 and then in chapter 6. And he says, and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. And the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. What happens here is the Nile is the center of power and vitality for Egypt. The saying is, as the Nile Basin goes, so does Egypt go. It is their wealth. It is where they they, they center, really, their life on. And what is God doing in this moment? Well, he's attacking a goddess named Happy. The goddess Happy provided fertile soil and, and fertile soil and the fullness of life of the Nile River. In essence, what does Happy bring to the table? Brings happiness, the good life. And God in his mercy in this first plague reminds Pharaoh and the Egyptians that their hope is built on sand. It's built on nothing that can sustain And what it actually leaves Pharaoh and the Egyptians doing at the end of chapter 7 is they're actually digging in the sand, trying to find dirty water to drink because the Nile has become unusable. But then he continues, the second plague, we see these frogs come from everywhere. He says in verse 3, the Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed, into your houses of your servants and your people, into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all on your servants. This is kind of humorous uh, to think of this, right? Like there is a consuming, uh, like, yeah, some of you are like, whoa, this is gross. Like there's frogs everywhere. Like frog legs are on everybody's legs. Like it's gross. They're everywhere. You can't escape them. Now, why frogs? Why is this the plague? Well, because frogs were a symbol of sacredness. They were something actually to be treasured in Egypt. And what he's doing, he's attacking the goddess Heket, who had the body in the head of a frog. This goddess was worshipped as one who controlled this sacred frog population. And God humiliates this little god by saying, I am the one who is sacred. I am the one who is sovereign. And he continues, in plague three and four, we see the gnats and the flies. The gnats come out of nowhere. There's no warning. He says to Aaron, Moses says to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that you may become gnats, or they may become gnats in the land of Egypt. If you're from South Georgia like me, you know what it's like to be surrounded by gnats. It's terrible. And then down in verse 20, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. And as he's going out to the waters and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else... If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. 
into the house of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground in which they stand. And so God sends these gnats and flies. And what he's doing here in this moment is he's again challenging the deities, the earth god Geb and the god Kephir, the beetle god, the god of resurrection. And in this moment, what he's proclaiming is that he is the God who creates from the dust, who returns life to the dust, and the only one who can resurrect life from the dust. What you'll notice from here on out, these plagues are not going to affect the Israelites anymore. From here on out, God is covering the Israelites as a demonstration of his power and mercy. In plague five, now we see the livestock is dead. For if you refuse to let me go in verse in chapter nine, and still hold them. Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall on with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, horses and donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. And attacking the livestock was going to devastate the economy. But it was a direct attack on the incarnated bull Apis, who was worshipped for the fertility of the land. And again, God is showing them that I am the only one who can provide for your needs. I'm the only one who can provide fertility in this land. And then we get to plague six. We see these boils. Now it's affecting the humans, right? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the clan and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out and sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So now boils are covering their skin so bad that the sorcerers themselves who were trying to come to, the, to, to, the, to, to Moses couldn't even make it there because they were in so much pain. And God is showing here that their God of healing, Sikhmet, was no match for him. He could do nothing to take away the sickness. And then plague seven comes and hail comes from the sky. And he says, behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never have been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. The worst hail storm in history ruins the land. And God humiliates the sky goddess nut, saying that even what comes from the sky is in control of the Lord Almighty. And then he gets to plague eight. We see this locust coming, right? Verse four, chapter 10, he says, for if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hell and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. In other words, the locusts come and nothing green remains in this once fertile land. Nothing. God immediately is attacking this goddess of, of, of crop fertility, Osiris, is saying he can do nothing to bring back the crops from the ground. And then we get a plague nine and, and plague 10, which we won't necessarily discuss plague 10 today. We'll, we'll, we'll save that for, for next week. But plague nine comes about in chapter 10. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Darkness was probably the worst and the most terrifying of all plagues because the primary deity that the Egyptians worshipped was the sun god, Re. And God blacks it out, right? Pitch darkness. Even Pharaoh himself was the incarnation of the sun god, Re. And here Pharaoh can do nothing to push back the darkness. Now, what is God doing here? When well, all these plagues, God is making it known that he is God alone. In every single one of these plagues, he is making sure that the people of Egypt, the people of, the, uh, of God, the Hebrews even, would see his greatness and know that he is God alone. And who has the front row seat to these awesome signs and wonders? Pharaoh. 
and yet he still refuses God. It's a reminder to us today that the Bible gives us overwhelming evidence that God is exactly who he said he was. And Jesus in the Gospels gives us overwhelming evidence that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that evidence has culminated in the resurrection in the empty tomb. You see, I say that because Pharaoh didn't need any more evidence. Sometimes we think, I, I don't know if I can believe that God is really the one true God. I need more evidence. Pharaoh didn't need the evidence. He had more than enough evidence to believe this. It wasn't a situation of evidence. It was a situation of his heart. Pharaoh was unwilling to acknowledge what was clear right in front of him. And twice, once in chapter 9 and then chapter 10, you get to these points where you think that Pharaoh is actually going to turn to the Lord. He actually says that, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, you're right, Lord. And you think, well, maybe he's actually turning to the Lord. But in the moment, he's actually just kind of playing, let's make a deal with God. Right? I'm not going to give you my full devotion. I'm not going to surrender my will to you, God. I'm not going to truly believe that you are the one true God. What I will do is, let's see if we can work out a deal here. It's like my grandmother used to say to me, uh, are you upset you got caught or are you upset at what you did, right? <laughs> I love that. Pharaoh, I, I got caught a lot. Um, but <laughs> Pharaoh here, he's upset that he's gotten caught. He's upset he's found a situation. He's frustrated by it. But he's not willing to acknowledge the truthfulness of God. And that's because, as we said at the beginning, Pharaoh believes he is a God. And until he's willing to step down from the throne of his own life, he can't really acknowledge the one true God right in front of him. And the question for us is that we have to come face to face with that truth today as well. If there is a God who is bigger than us, and if the evidence points to his existence, then how does that change the way we live? How does that change the way we relate and interact with that God in this world? But he's not only just proclaiming his truthfulness, he's also proclaiming that he is the wise creator through these plagues. Now, if you read the plagues, there's one thing that I noticed this time that I haven't really noticed in the past is that when you read the plagues, you see that they're actually kind of natural progressions of one another, right? There, there just seems to be these natural consequences that flow from the plagues, right? Think about it. The Nile is turned to blood. It's unusable. And what happens if it's unusable? Well, then the fish die and the whole ecosystem is, is exploded from the Nile. And so what happens from that? Well, plague two, all these frogs begin to come out of the Nile all over the land. And then after plague two, you have these zillions of frogs that are dead, stinky dead frog carcasses everywhere, right? And what happens in plague three and four? four? Well, then you have gnats and flies swarming the land. And it just seems that as you, if you look at these, they seem like they're just kind of natural progressions of one another. Like there's this natural consequences that flow from one plague to the next. And you get to the, the, the epidemics of the livestock dying and then people's skin being covered with boils. And then you see that the weather is changing and it ruins the land. And then these insects come and they ruin the land. And it just seems like, why these plagues? Like, why, why in this order? Why did God show his power in this way? Like, if God's just here to show off his power and if he's just here in the plagues to say like, hey, I'm God, listen to me. Like, couldn't he have done it in a different way? I mean, think about that for a moment. Like, instead of sending frogs out of the Nile, why didn't he just gather the courts of Pharaoh and turn them all into frogs and then say, hey, Pharaoh, like, bend the knee or you're next, right? Like, I think that would have got it done a lot faster if he was just trying to show his power on display. But maybe he's trying to teach us something else as well. You see, not only is he putting his supernatural power on display, but I think God is also teaching us a powerful lesson here. He's, he's showcasing what happens when things get out of control, when creation breaks down, when things begin to go crazy and devour itself, when nature itself turns back to its pre-creation chaos. You see, when you go back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you see all the same elements that we see in the plagues. Man, woman, 
plants, trees, water, weather, and they're all working in unison with one another. You see this perfect harmony in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 of how all these things work together and and how it's described, the garden is described as this flourishing, beautiful, wholeness, light order. It's absolutely beautiful. But when you look at the plagues, you see the exact opposite. You see things destroying each other. You see animals destroying plants. You see the insects destroying the crop, the weather destroying the land, the now being unusable. All these things, it seems as if creation is warring against each other, and what flows out of it is just kind of chaos. And then you get to the very end of the plagues. And when you get to the end of the plagues, you actually get back to the beginning of creation. Darkness. See, in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us that the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And then the Spirit of God comes and we see what flows out of creation from that moment is light, order, and flourishing in the garden. Now, why did I bring this up? Because I think what God is teaching us, another great reason to trust Him, to follow Him, to see that He is God and God alone is to see that he is the wise creator and that he has created the world to to work in such a way. He has created order in this world. He's created us to live in this world in such a way that when we divert from that plan, when when we get off course, when we don't trust his plan for how he has orchestrated this creation to work, chaos ensues. Right? There's natural consequences follow. Disorder comes about just like the plagues. When we get off the plan that God has created in the beginning, when we see that he has created order in this world and he's created us in his image to operate in such a way in this world and we deviate from that and we don't trust his goodness in that, what ends up happening is these natural consequences kind of flow from that. Let me give you an example. In my uh, mom's side of the family, all the men uh, have uh, kind of high blood pressure, heart conditions, like early, you know, happens early in the a- ages. And so um, if I were to go to my doctor and, and get a checkup and she were to say, hey, look, I've seen your family history. I, I see what's happening. Uh, you, you need to cut out cholesterol. Like you just need to do it, right? You need, you need to stop having, your, your diet needs to not have ha- high fat and, and salt content in it. You need to stop eating this, this, and this. I'm going to tell you, you need to completely cut this out of your diet if you want to be healthy. Now, if my doctor were to say that to me, what I wouldn't respond, most likely, what I wouldn't respond in the moment is, you're just trying to control my life, right? You're just trying to exercise your power over me. Why are you telling me this? <laughs> that'd be kind of crazy, right? Maybe you've done that to your doctor, but that'd be a little weird, right? Or, or maybe, maybe you'd come to the doctor and, and you probably wouldn't say this either, like, I'm not going to do it. What are you going to do, arrest me? <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to punish me, right? That's, that's probably not how you're going to respond to your doctor because your doctor is giving a real directive, a real order to you. But what your doctor's telling you in that moment is something for your own benefit, for your own flourishing, for, your, for your, the good of who you are as a person. To not do these things is actually to show that there's a way to have freedom and flourishing in life, Wesley. If you want, a free, if you want that freedom and flourishing, do these things. But if I were to say, no, I'm not going to listen to that, I'm not going to do that, well, what's going to ensue? My life's probably going to unravel, right? There's a chance I'm going to have a heart attack. There's consequences to that choice. And this is how God works in this world. God in the plagues is telling us he is the wise creator. He's not just showing his power. He's revealing that he has created the world to operate in such a way for our own flourishing, for our own goodness. 
He's showing us that, that his creation reveals his wisdom. It reveals his truthfulness. And when we don't live up to that, there are consequences that just naturally float. In other words, what God is not saying is that if you don't live for me today, then tomorrow I'm probably going to you know, make you have a fender bender or something, right? No, no. If, you don't, if, if we deviate from the plan today, there's probably going to be consequences from that that are naturally going to flow out of our lives, right? But the plagues also remind us that where we find wholeness, where we find our, our fullness of joy in life, is when we believe in him, when we trust in his wisdom and his goodness. And in that flourishing happens. And when I say flourishing, I don't mean the absence of hardships or problems in this world, because we're going to have those. It's something bigger than that. It's something that Jesus teaches us in the book of John. He says that the thief will come to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief comes for chaos. The thief comes to, to break down, for things to unravel in your life. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I have come that you may know the fullness of life, that you may be planted in the house of the Lord, as the psalm says, and that you may flourish in the courts of God. You see, in the plagues, he's actually revealing there's, a, there's wisdom behind the way he's operated this world to work. And there's wisdom and trusting in the way in which he has operated things to happen. Now, finally, I think this is probably perhaps the thing that he is communicating most clearly or most needed for us this morning and that he is the merciful judge. You see, in the plagues, he's not just revealing his truthfulness, that he is the one true God. He's not just revealing that, hey, look, this is a sign that I am the wise creator, and, and when, when you deviate from the path, like this is what naturally happens from that. He's revealing his mercy to us. You see, when we read the plagues, I think the first thing that we often think about, at least in my mind, I think of judgment. I think of this, this idea of divine punishment, calamity being brought down upon the Egyptians. And, and I, I, I wonder in my mind, I think, why, God? Like, why would you do this? Why, why does it matter that you have to do this, God? But in asking those questions, I'm actually missing the point. In asking those questions, I'm missing the whole point of why he brought the plagues in the first place. And that is to rescue, to liberate, to deliver his people. You see, the plagues were sent as part of God's rescue plan for his people. But I want you to know something, it's not just for the Hebrews. In chapter 9, he reveals the fullness of this plan. In verse 15, he says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, he says to Pharaoh, if I really wanted to, you could be done, Right? But in his mercy, he has given Pharaoh time and time and time again to see his true character. And he says, I could, I could have just, if I wanted to display my power, this could have been over a long time ago, Pharaoh. But listen to what he says, the purpose. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, what God says here is that, hey, these plagues, these are going to be told to millions and millions and millions of people throughout the centuries. And in every time people hear the plagues, they're going to see my story of redemption. They're going to hear about how I rescued my people. But not only that, he's saying here that I have come not just to rescue the Hebrews, but I'm going to do this in such a way that the whole world will understand who I am and my salvation. 
See, God sent these plagues to show his plan of salvation, to reveal how he is the merciful judge who will rescue us. And it perhaps is most clearly found in the 10th plague here. But today we're going to focus just on the first nine. And in the ninth plague, we see another glimpse of how he is merciful. It says that he brings darkness to the land of Egypt. And there's one other time in the Bible outside of creation in which darkness covers the land. And that's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, when Jesus is on the cross. And he says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthaneh. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the earth shook, the rocks split. What's going on in this moment? In that moment on the cross, all the plagues of God's justice fell upon Jesus. In that moment on the cross, darkness, chaos came down upon him and he experienced absolute agony. Why? Because this is the ultimate exodus. This is the ultimate story of deliverance. That the plagues of God came down upon Jesus, darkness upon Jesus. And as a result, we don't have to receive those plagues. As a result today, what he did in our place, we don't receive those plagues. Jesus is the judge over the entire earth, but when he came down on the cross, he came as the judge to be judged, not to give judgment. It was on the cross that he bared the judgment of God. And Jesus Christ was the wise creator of this world, and he goes to the cross. And as our wise creator, he goes to the cross. Why? So that he could recreate us. So that we could experience his forgiveness. So that he could accept us in his love. You see, it's on the cross where Jesus Christ died for us. And in that moment, the judge, the merciful judge, was willing to be judged for us. Now, let me tell you why that's good news real quick as we close to our time of communion. Because the Christian life, when we think about what Jesus Christ has done for us, it is always going to be a balancing act of doing and resting. And here's what I mean by that. If you're just focused on the doing part, you're going to be walking on eggshells in this life. You're going to be wondering, when is it going to be a time where God might bring down that judgment on me? Because we are called to do. And in this passage, we're giving so much evidence of of why we should do the will of God, why we should work towards the will of God, why we should obey his voice. And doing these things are good because it's showing that we are living life on Jesus' mission, right? He came to this world to undo what the plagues did. He came to this world to heal the sick, to forgive sinners, to heal the blind, to resurrect the dead. And in doing so, he is undoing the work of the plagues. He is showing us that one day he's going to restore this full world. And until that moment, he uses us to enter in this world, to offer forgiveness to others, to showcase the gospel to others, to tell people about the love of Jesus to enter this world where there is need and meet that need. And we get to do these things, but this is why it's a balance between doing and resting. Because when we fail, because we will. When we don't live up, because we will. When we don't obey the voice of the Lord, we don't have to say, oh gosh, is this my last chance? Is today the day he's going to get me? Because we can rest 
in what Christ has already done for us. In that moment of panic in our hearts, we can turn to Jesus and be reminded that he has already been judged on our behalf. And the compassion and mercy of God is now poured out on us. We didn't earn it in any way. It was freely given to us when we were at our worst. And so as you live this life, you don't have to walk on eggshells wondering, is this going to be the last chance? We can live for the one true God. We can live in the order in which he has created us to live in this world. But when we fail, we can rest in what Jesus has done for us. We can rest that he has went to the cross for us. He died for us. And in doing so, we don't have to experience the judgment of the plagues. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.